Hey guys, this is part two of my interview with Time and Klein. This is a little bit different than I normally release episodes, but Time and I had such a great time talking that I wanted to break this up into two different episodes. And so if you're looking for episode one, if you missed episode one, you can look in the show notes and you can make sure and go listen to the first half of our interview, episode one of our interview. Uh, I also wanted to remind you, if you are a big fan of the show, make sure you subscribe. Uh, click that subscribe uh, icon and share this episode with your friends. Share the podcast with your friends. Leave us a great rating. And then another way you can help out the, the podcast effort is hop onto Patreon. There will be a link to that in the show notes as well. And you can sign up to be a subscriber where I ask exclusive questions and hear from you guys and you who are a big fan of the show uh, more directly. So I'd love it if you could hop on there and subscribe any amount on Patreon. That goes a long way to helping put on the show. So with that said, here's my second half of my interview with Timon Klein. A lot of my friends, they hear me kind of joke about, yeah, we're Christian nationalists, whatever. And yeah. they think I'm downplaying what mm. what I grew up in, which is basically I grew up in, in, uh, in, in a Southern Baptist church culture yeah. Where as a child, it's very like overlap church and uh, state. You've got Fourth mm -hmm. of July ceremonies where we're not singing hymns. We're singing songs about America. Um, right. You've got fireworks. You've got politicians speaking. Uh, the the best example I can think of is Robert Jeffries in Dallas, yeah. uh, which was in my orbit growing up. And so mm -hmm. they they think that I'm saying like that's that's who I am. And I'm like, that's not what I'm talking about. What, yeah. what are we talking about when we say Christian nationalism, when you say, you know, we, whether you joke about it or embrace the term, whatever it is, like, how do you how do you help those people come along and really see like, that's, I'm not, that's not a, uh, a proper manifestation of what I'm talking about here. Yeah. I mean, the, the easiest answer, most simple one is just like, they're, I mean, they're just goofy. Like, look at those people. Um, this is, this is not Jeffress or, 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 you know, doing this, make America great again, him, right. this kind of thing. This is, this would not at all be what I would identify with. And I grew up in the SBC as well with, with similar, um, experiences. And, and of course, uh, certainly in like your, your adolescence and, and teenage years look down on that because it's cool too. Right. Right. And this, you're supposed to, supposed to, uh, think that that's embarrassing. Yep. Um, I would say, you know, it may be a impractical and sloppy expression of, of these impulses, but that are nevertheless good and natural impulses. Mm. And, and um, they're just, they're just need to be, they need to be channeled better. And this is part of the intellectual project. Um, so maybe you would say they're necessary, but insufficient or, or they're acceptable, but not uh, fully formed. And I, th I think what I've, come to realize is this is um again these impulses are very natural the the separation of, of church and state as liberalism tries to frame it is not uh either sustainable or historically attested to mm. um as as christians in our in our history and tradition i mean this this whether you want to begin with constantine or with the the magisterial reformers you'll find nothing that helps you there until <laughs> maybe until maybe the bloody tenet from uh, roger williams um, <laughs> so so the distinction is not to be so stark and this is a this is a fiction of liberalism that's been imposed upon us um not only is it not desirable but it's impossible actually because as uh, i think you know you've talked about before wherever either twitter or on your on your podcast i mean this is there's many many things that fill the gap for religion 
um, for pro- for proper religion or true religion when when it's not filling the gap. Um, there's some moral basis basis that's always forming the um, the impetus or rationale for laws and these things. So when you're a um, when you look at a country or a people, they naturally have some kind of religious character. Mm. This is just just a fact because we're religious people. Our theology tells us this. The Calvin tells us this, and so it's of it's of course very natural to think then that this should be um, instructive to and influential upon um, your your life together, your symbiotics. Uh, you know, as Althusius would put it, your your uh, living together, which is political life that's that's all it is you know not defining politics narrowly as kind of partisanship is is really uh, not helpful um we're all annoyed with talking about like the tax code or something but what what we're really getting at is what does community look like and that's Mm. politics and so it's only natural of course that your religion should influence it and that you should seek to have religious agreement if if man is a religious being as well as a social being, that means the two have to coincide. Yep. And so maybe it's sloppily and kind of corny in the, in its expression uh, that we see from MAGA country or whatever. Um, But I, I kind of despise the people that look down on those, those people now that are just following a ill-formed impulse um, and maybe, you know, wreaking some havoc along the way, but the people who have the ability to help them, formulate a better articulation of that, just make fun of them instead. Right. And those are the people from, you know, where we've grown up, as we were talking about before the, the show started. Right. Um, and I, I've come to think, actually, those people have not, uh, you have to learn to ignore this impulse and learn to ignore this reality of society. They've not learned it yet. And yep. the people that that I used to, you know, affiliate with when I was younger have learned to, and that and that is then uh, presented as virtue. Mm-hmm. And I think it's kind of gross now. And you have lots of parties in our own, you know, big Eva world, um, TGC or whatever that, that proliferate that. Yeah. Um, and I think it's incredibly unpastoral and also unrealistic and, um, and all historical. Yeah, I, I agree. And it, it's really fascinating when I have my, you know, I, I keep encountering pastors and they'll tell me about, I have this family in my church and they're super MAGA, super Trumpers, you know, whatever. And I'm like, can I talk to them? Like, cause mm-hmm. I, I, they don't, I mean, for what, for better or for worse, that's not my context. Um, I, I don't have that, those kind of conversations very often at my church. Maybe I'm not based enough or Christian nationalist <laughs> or whatever, but I think no, it's it may, just that you're in Boulder. I think so too. <laughs> um, and so I, I always want to talk to them because I'm, I'm not, I'm not so certain that kind of sneering at them and despising them is going to be mm, the most helpful thing. In fact, yeah. I, I really do believe that if I just could get on the phone with them, I could kind of show them a better way because I do yeah. still view a lot of their expressions and whatever it is, is uh, kind of adding to the noise. But yeah. like you said, their impulse to, to want to belong to a people, to defend what they have, uh, to kind of stand up, for certain values. These are all good things. And this, this higher education kind of globalist approach to Christianity, even where we downplay the local, we downplay the nation, we downplay society in favor of kind of like uh, one of my, one of my stories that, that really confounds me. And it truly does is, uh, and it's one of the most uh, famous stories of Jesus where he, 
he tells the story of the the good samaritan and mm. the moral we've taken in the modern age is everyone is my neighbor so what it does though is is we we so abstractize it we take it out of the text and we say therefore every human all seven billion of us on the planet they're my neighbor which in some ways you know wherever you go yes those those are now your neighbors but it, it depersonalizes it yeah and and so it's the same way as saying well i love everyone yeah. and and i don't have some kind of special love for my wife like i i privilege right. the love for my wife over you or over my neighbor and that's yeah. that's a godly thing. That's uh, what a, mm -hmm. what a C.S. Lewis or somebody else. It's an order of love uh, yeah. issue. Yeah, yeah. I think I think that's right. And it's and it's also taking away, you know, kind of the the Burkean conception of good. You know, the, this word is just associated with racism now. But good discrimination of we mm. can make as a society, as a community, this not that. Not everything has to be completely. Um, follow to its logical conclusions or have exact parody. You can say, we want to do this, not that. I mean, going back to New England, uh, my one of my favorite quotes from Nathaniel Ward is to say, these people, meaning that a lot of the dissenters have all the religious liberty in the world to go elsewhere. Mm. Meaning we're doing this here. You can join in. You're welcome. If not, there's plenty of territory. Go sure. elsewhere. Yeah. Right? And so this is this is somewhat of the especially of like the boomers that we we make fun of now. I mean, I like to say the new right is more boomer than the boomers. That's what we're doing. <laughs> but the boomers, I mean, think about what they've lost. If you're born in like the 40s and 50s and now mm. you're you're getting into old age. I mean, the the change is incredible. The only culturally, I don't know if the change can be rivaled by a prior generation. Materially, the generation prior to them probably experienced more material change just yep. moving from like outhouses to nuclear war in your lifetime that's right. nuts but in america the boomers have experienced a certain loss and it's kind of uh you know made fun of now or poked at that like you want this 1950s ideal that never existed and that, and some of that may be true um but the the picture that our friend uh, clifford humphrey will always point to is the the difference between you know New York City and the whenever it is the 40s or 50s on Easter having you know all the skyscrapers have crosses right as, as opposed to a couple of years ago when they're doing the rainbow flag stuff right yep. that's that's it that's what people um, some of this comes up in the in the Tim Keller dust up over the past yep. week I mean yep. this is what people are missing um, and so that's where I've actually developed a lot of compassion for the, the our parents generation really. Yep. Um, they're not very good at articulating it. They're very angry. This comes out in really nasty ways sometimes, really counterproductive ways. Um, but I get it. And I think not just putting them down, you know, is, is a, a good virtue to develop, but then also move, move forward and say, well, you know, what is it about this that's really bothering them? Maybe it's something very natural. They just can't articulate it because they never were forced to. Right. And then, and also looking at, you know, moving from a sort of David Barton levels uh, style of like American history uh, of the founding, which is, you know, very poorly sourced and kind of a joke to something more serious that is that is also still pushing back against a progressive narrative. And there was one. I mean, this is the 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 effect of narratives is incredible and they're they're effective in very short order. Yes, it's really like. 50 years that a particular narrative of America has been formulated, distilled, and dictates 
both policy and the the popular consciousness, the the popular imagination. Um, so this is is Im- important work to do. And part of you know small thing I'm trying to do is just draw out a lot of sources. Yep. And say there's documentary history here. There's actually some really good social history from a couple de- decades ago about communal life in New England, these sorts of things that counteract a lot of the general narratives even evangelicals carry with them now. Right. And is producing things like what Russell Moore does, what Paul Miller does, what, what David French does. They're all operating with this um, narrative that's simply not founded in, in uh, the historical artifacts. It just yeah, and that's what I love about the article. I mean, honestly, to be frank, like I, I read the top part and then I saw you were citing all these sources and I'm like, this is going to be legit. And so I started scrolling because I was like, what's what's it going to get to? Because at this point, the, the evidence is just overwhelming. If you just look at the documents, if you just look at the history um, to dispute the fact that it was a Christian culture, which is a good thing and we should want, which I know some of my friends will not like. Um, it, it, we should want a Christian culture. We should want Christianity yeah. to flourish. We should want more Christians to be made. And then you look at the founding mm-hmm. documents. There's no doubt that Christianity was the norm of uh, the way that people reasoned and thought about society. And we shouldn't apologize for that. And I think that's what frustrates me is like somehow we should we should feel sorry for saying that. Now, I get the whole argument. There was corruption in there. There were all sorts of uh, things we, we may not do if we were in their shoes, particularly regarding uh, slavery and race. But that's part of the reason yeah. I'm doing my, my PhD is because I really want to look at how they conceived of that in that time not to try mm-hmm. to justify it, but to try to understand, like, how, what was their conception of the Imago Day? What was their conception of? Because John Elliott's out yeah. there on the frontier, and yeah. he's tra- yeah. he's translating. I mean, this is the first time in a thousand years that the Bible is yeah. being translated into a native language. Was it, was he doing Algonquin? What yeah. was he doing? Yeah, I think that's right. And Incredible. he's out there doing it. And you don't do yeah. that. You don't educate people who you view as less than human. And so yeah. even this this last week, and I mentioned this in my sermon on Sunday, I don't know how it was received very well, but I think it was, was the point that Harvard just released a study where between uh, 1636 when Harvard was founded and 1783 yeah. when, when slavery was outlawed in Massachusetts, um, yep. over those about 150 years, uh, staff members associated or faculty associated with Harvard had owned around 70 slaves total over 150 years. And so in order to remedy that past thing that was 250 years ago, they're now allocating $100 million to something. We don't know what, you know, to try to remedy their guilt over these past sins. And and the point of bringing that up wasn't to diminish, you know, the conversation on slavery and the brutality that happened alongside slavery, but it is to talk about how the secular mind has no concept of how to deal with the guilt or deal with the yeah. shame, or deal with the fear, all this kind of stuff, and how the more we diminish our Christian heritage, the worse it's going to get. Yeah, yeah they may. I mean, they make it causal, right? Which is which is ridiculous to say, just because there's evident failings. I mean, I, I'd point out two things. The the first one's short, which is, um, I'm going to forget which church it is in Massachusetts. Um, I have this written down somewhere, but there's there's a particular church. I want to say it's Richard Mather's congregation, but I could be wrong. Where they they welcome into their church as a member um, a a woman who is a slave, and she's very well known for her uh, how effective she is at evangelizing uh, some of the native populations. Um, and she is going to be at one point sold from her current master, who's like a merchant in Massachusetts, in Boston, who's not a member of the church. 
Um, he's, she's going to be sold elsewhere. The church rallies together and buys her freedom because they said, because she's their sister. Mm. I mean, this is just, I'm not, you know, this doesn't kind of smooth over, over everything, but it's like, that is a hitch in the giddy up. That's right. On the, on the narrative, right. This is the, some, there's the, the human, we would say the same thing about abortion over the past 50 years. The activity is really complicated. How you start parsing that has to be careful. I'm not sure you can actually do it if you weren't there. It's just very complicated. But even Cheryl Harris, you know, famous article on um, whiteness is property. That article, you if you haven't read it, you should. Her first like 10 to 15 pages on the historical narrative of how the distinction between uh, or, or I guess you would say slavery predicated upon race mm. develops is like way into the 18th century. I actually think her history is very good because she's mm. relying on non-critical theorists to do it. Okay. And it says like in the 17th century, the Puritan period, the indentured white servant and the, the enslaved black person, there's really class wise, there's no distinction. Huh. There's just, it, it's not a racial thing yet. Race is not actually developed as a category till later. It's very good. I mean, th- so the point is, it's very, this is a complicated history and the, the, um, the packaging of it to, uh, to, to be a, an activist type of history is just, is, is doing us all a disservice. Right. Um, the, but the latter thing I would say is, you know, the, the real slavery uh, as a, scourge kind of on the nation does have a real effect. And part of my narrative that I haven't fully written anywhere is that as we've talked about, the states at the founding are the moral centers. This is where even today in our constitutional doctrine, we recognize the state police power, which is the state's inherent power to regulate for morals, health, safety, all these things. This come up and this came up in our COVID-19 conversation Mm -hmm. at the state level. This is where it was always lodged because it's inherited from the colonial uh, charters and, and really the Royal power. And it just carries on. Um, So this is part of why you need them to assent to the constitution and these things. (laughs) So this is where the moral authority is, is why you have establishments, all these things. Um, my part of my kind of thesis in general about American history is that as you, because this was not dealt with slavery was not dealt with at the founding as it should have been, maybe it was politically impossible, but we would say morally it should have been sure by the time you get to the civil war, it is so decimated the moral credibility and authority of the States, mm. that a national um, action that Lincoln takes. And I think uh, Noah uh, Friedman or Feldman Feldman at Harvard has written a new book uh, called the, um, uh, I can't remember what it is. It's all about Lincoln. He essentially accepts the Southern kind of lost cause theory of Lincoln being a dictator and says, <laughs> yeah, that's true. Oh, wow. He just totally, uh, you know, Noah Feldman's a Harvard law professor. So he's not, he was like, that's true. He overrides everything. It's a new founding. He just decimates it. And wow. So it's a very like clever kind of thesis. Yeah. And of course he says it's for the good. And I would agree with him. I would say at that point, 1850s, you've got to do something. Okay. And this is what it takes. But what that does, unfortunately, to our, our system, our polity, is it, it begins to, at that point, erode the moral authority and credibility of at, at the state level, which was always within a federalist system supposed to be the epicenter of religious and moral life. And so by the time you get to the 1940s, you can officially 
um, incorporate the establishment clause into the states where you could never have a state church again. Huh. Right. So 1947 is when that happens with the Everson case. That's how long it takes. Like, right. Until then, you could have done it. So it's like that is that's just a contingency of history. It was the right thing to do at like each moment. But it's very sad because it's like we we gave up our birthright in a certain sense early on and you never are able to recover. So mm. my, you know, the tentative ti- the title for that thesis out there is like dead on arrival. Like it just sure. is never going to work because you didn't deal with this. If you had, the nation would be very different. And that is why you don't have a thoroughly Christian nation now because the funneling up is gone. Fascinating. And that's, that's what's happened. So huh. um, that both acknowledges the, um, you know, extreme kind of uh, the, the, the problem we had with slavery, the extreme ill sin, grave sin, uh, the necessity of dealing with it, but also a Christian nationalist strand of this is what it should have been. So both sure. of those things put together might uh, confound certain narratives of, of what a conservative Christian is supposed to think um, about these things. And I just see them now as um, a lamentable inevitability. Yeah. Uh, that's how it goes. But it doesn't take away from the fact of what the founding looked like in terms of Christianity that I talked about in the article. And, um, and therefore, it's still having some import for us today on where we should be um, directing our national affections and energies um, in, in that sense. So that's great. That's somewhat cogent, but that's that, what you said sparked that uh, that idea. No, that's great. I love it. Uh, yeah. New ideas, and I, and it helped me kind of think think more deeply and, and differently about a lot of those different topics, especially someone from originally from Texas, have a lot of state pride, and uh, yeah. I think of, of Lee, who had a lot of state pride in Virginia. And, yeah. uh, and so, yeah, I think it broadens the conversation and, and I do like poking holes in, in kind of the, the myths, especially the myths that don't comport with, uh, with, with history itself, with the, with the yeah. stuff you laid out in your article. Um, I think kind of one last thing, uh, would be at the end of your article, you know, you mentioned, uh, I'll just read the last paragraph, the sex and factions that dominated the social political life of the early Republic were predominantly of reformation heritage. Their theological commitments, for better or for worse, conditioned the early character and trajectory of the nation. Any who deny this are simply not paying attention to the historical data. Secular Secularist pluralism has no place in the historic American errand into the wilderness. And until we recognize this, we might toil in the wilderness forever. So I guess my question would be, do you believe that David French is toiling in the wilderness forever? <laughs> yes, I do. And that has a, a double, I think Ben Dunson, the, you know, the editor, editor of American reformer was like by the last two lines, what do you mean by this? Is it yeah. historical historically, like we're never going to figure it out or right. is it normatively? I said both. Yeah. So it's, it's both things. Um, yeah. Until you, I mean, you're just not going to get in my mind, in my opinion, um, you're not going to come to a, a proper understanding of your, your history and, and really yourself in that way. Cause you're part of uh, this history until you recognize this, a secularist pluralist project was never in the cards for any of the people that did the real work and put in the blood, sweat and tears for the first hundred years of the country um, or so. And I'm stretching that back to the, the Puritan founding. That's when the country begins. This is what Perry Miller says. This is why, by the way, we all know what the model of Christian charity is from Winthrop. This is Miller's uh, impact. He, as you may know, was 
part of the uh, the kind of domestic counterintelligence unit in the American government during the Cold War. Yeah. Counter propaganda. And so part of his historical stuff is always in some ways driven by what's the real, you know, let's give ourselves a Christian and American narrative, of, even though he's not a Christian. And so the model of Christianity becomes popular again. The presidents don't quote it until Kennedy hmm. and onward um, because, because Miller re kind of popularizes it. So it's um, that, is, that is, you know, recovered because you're, you're wanting to get back to what you were contradistinguished from what your enemy was at the time, but that doesn't make it any less. Um, in fact, in some ways we're facing the same enemy now just on the domestic domestic front. So Miller may be even more useful. <laughs> right. um, but this, that narrative of the, the kind of progressive narrative of this, you know, secularist pluralism, this is what, um, you know, they'll point to the absence of God in this, in the national constitution. They'll point to, you know, the couple people, Thomas Paine, Thomas Jefferson, that are deists right. and these kinds of things and make that everything. And right. it's like, well, there's lots more historical data there. Yeah. This is just not work. Does not compute. And um, unless you start paying attention to the broader picture, you're just going to swirl round and around in that, trying to make sense of your place as a Christian in your own country and how you should move forward as long as you buy that narrative. Doesn't mean there weren't pluralist secularists, secularists at the time that were wanting something like that. But even Jefferson, that's a stretch to, to make. I mean, what he would um, make of certain things going on now is is pretty easy to say. I mean, he would freak out about it. If, no even kidding. If it's an arbitrary line. Um, same thing with Roger Williams, as I, I said, Corey yeah. was you know brought up earlier. So these guys that are uh, fit in the secularist narrative in a certain way actually wouldn't have found themselves there. No. And um, they keep trying to pull from history to try to justify the case. And it's like, there's nothing there. Like stop. There's, there's, there's nothing there. And it doesn't, um, you know, even if they don't believe it as a, as a Christian, it's a Christian nationalist, we might say. Sure. You should you should at least get this down yourself. Otherwise, you're you're gonna feel so unsettled because we do we do need the myth. Um again, doesn't mean the myth is untrue. I mean, we can do this with, with Genesis, right? Genesis is uh in the comparative literature very obviously meant to mirror and therefore counteract uh surrounding uh ancient Near East literature and its style, it's an apologetic in many right. ways. Um, it's mirroring their style to say this is something different. In that way, it's mythological. And if you read, you know, gen even Genesis one, the creation story, from just kind of a straightforward way, you're like, this is ridiculous. There, because it's self-referential. Like, how do you talk about things being created out of nothing? This is weird. Um, so you can say, in in many ways, it's meant to be a myth. That doesn't mm. mean it's untrue, right? And that doesn't mean it's not factual. And we should think the same way about our, our national narrative. Of right. The myth is very important because it's formative. And progressives have realized this a long time ago. Yes. And they still do. And we've just not entered the fight, not entered the fray. Um, so we should um, begin to do that as well. And I think the documentary history, um, documented history supports us. It's just there's a lot of stuff that is there for the taking that we've not availed ourselves of. That's what uh, that's what gets me going is there's so much available. And if I were to make yeah. a final emphasis at, at the kind of close of the episode, it's it's, uh, you know, people will look at me and my style and kind of my approach and engagement and they go, what has gotten into him? And I'll never forget in 2020, 
um, we were down in Texas and Meemaw, Kim's grandmother, looked at mm -hmm. me and she said, what is going on? She's crying. She's yeah. like, what is going on? You know, she was born in the 30s um, yeah. and they're retiring their family farm, five generations farming mm -hmm. in the same town. And I contrast that with her kind of looking at me and, and it felt like a charge almost of like, not only help, but what are you going to do about it? Yeah. And that, that got in me that that's just part of, I'm part of that family. And I want to, I want to do something other than yeah. just kind of like him and hall, like, well, things are bad. Like I want to do something. And then the other yeah. thing is like in that same context, we're now at a point where teachers in a local ISD in Texas are putting out, uh, uh, dog bowls for for kids that identify as dogs right and and think about the incongruency just intellectually yeah. between yeah. how she was raised and now and how yeah. that should that should get in in you and motivate you to yeah. do something about it like it shouldn't just you shouldn't just give over to some kind of pluralist fantasy about yeah. reality and about our nation we should do something about it now people are di gifted in different ways um, and do different things. You're doing your own work out there and on the East coast and I'm trying to do my own work here in Colorado, but, but that would be my yeah. final exhortation. Um, and yeah. I think, I think following time in is a, is a great way to kind of get <laughs> a broader perspective. Um, you know, if, if they, obviously I'm going to link to this article we've referenced in the show notes. Uh, I want, I want people to follow you on Twitter. What's your Twitter handle? It's uh, T Lloyd Klein with two L's. There you go. T L L O Y D C L I N E. Yeah. Perfect. And then is there anywhere else people should catch up with you? No, I mean, I, I write it multiple places, American former reformer lately. I'd highly, like, highly recommend um, not just mine, but, but lots of people's articles there. I mean, they're just putting out, putting out a lot of good stuff. Yep. Um, I write at modern reformation regularly. Um, I've, I've written some other places. It cool. doesn't matter, but I uh, highly recommend American reformer just because of, uh, you know, Brad Littlejohn writes there, Clifford Humphrey writes there. Miles Smith, lots of guys doing, um, if not directly in agreement with what I'm doing, very adjacent, you know, yep. similar um, type of helpful work to the to the issues we're talking about. And so I would very much recommend them. Cool. That's um, great. To everybody. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for being on the show today, Timon. Yeah. Thank you, man.